Hey, welcome to uh, Voice. If you are new, welcome. Uh, if you are an OG, welcome. If you're somewhere between, uh, welcome to church. Really glad that you're here. If you're watching online, glad you're here too. Kind of, in, virtually, but I'm really glad that um, one day you're going to come in person. Uh, you know, it's so funny when we're, when now we put the slide up saying we're turning four next month. Uh, it was kind of where I was like, oh yeah, four. So what, what does that make us? Like we're like a kindergartner, pre-K four. But then, then it hit me, I was like, you know what? When we, when we had our terrible twos, we turned two in the pandemic. And so it was like a terrible, that was a terrible couple of years. Uh, I, I think kind of we still are in a pandemic. Are we still in a pandemic? Uh, so anyways, sure, yes, depends on who you ask. Uh, well, so today, I wasn't supposed to speak. Today, Raphael, uh, one of our elders, he's the one who kind of was the, his, the, the Breaking Bread series that we're in right now, was kind of his brainchild. And so he was going to close out the series today. We we're all looking forward to it and been thinking about it for months. Uh, and then last night, uh, he texts, he goes, hey, uh, I'm feeling sick and it's getting worse. It's like, awesome. Uh, that's what you want to hear on a Saturday night. It's like, okay, so we got, we got on the phone and it was, he's like, I'm feeling okay. And then every three seconds, he's like hacking, you know, like coughing, like, like, and so it's like, okay, you know what? Like, he's like, I, I can, maybe I can film it or maybe I can, and then he's like, actually, that's not going to come across really good. He's coughing every three seconds. And so we're like, look, at first we're like, look, why don't you just give me your notes and then I'll just modify them to feel more like me and I'll teach them. And then I, they're, they're on the call. It's like, you know what? This is your baby. This series is your baby. So why don't you just teach that next week, close out that series this week. We'll take a, we'll take a, like a Zach Morris timeout from the series. Uh, we'll do a, a, a different teaching today. Uh, so you're stuck with me today. I'm so sorry. Uh, Raphael will be here next week. And then um, we'll close that out. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of, if you're like, well, I thought we were in Breaking Bread. Uh, we're, we're not uh, right now. So Today, uh, today, if you are taking notes, if you name your notes, the title of a teaching is Not Your Sweetest Jesus. Okay, Not Your Sweetest Jesus, which you're like, on what the heck are you talking about? You'll see. Okay, a few years ago, a few years ago, our family had this opportunity to go to Rome in the before times, uh, before uh, the world shut down. And uh, it was an amazing trip. And one of the cool things, uh, besides the gelato and uh, carbonara, uh, besides, we literally had those every day. Uh, it got to the point where we, we go to the uh, gelato shop and they're like, your usual? You shouldn't have a usual, uh, especially if you're a tourist. So, but one of the most impacting things was going to places um, like biblical uh, sites, right? Going to like the prison that Paul was in, where he wrote some of the New Testament letters. And to go, he was here. Like it was a really small space, but to go, Paul was here, like writing, we were in the catacombs, or, you know, our family uh, kind of jokes about it because our guy didn't say catacombs. He said catacombs, and we laugh about that all the time. Anyways, you had to be there. So we go to the catacombs, catacombs, and you, there, were, uh, there were times where the early church would meet underground, literally under the ground in the catacombs, and you can go today to certain parts, and there is etched in the wall Petros, or etched in the wall Paulos. I mean, Peter and Paul, like because they were teaching the early church there. And it was like, it reminded me that what we believe in, what we adhere to, what we follow is not a, it's not a doctrine. It's not just a, a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a service. It's not a denomination. What we do is, is we follow something anchored in reality. We follow something anchored in history. 
And so that's what I want to talk about today. We're actually going to, today's talk is, is a bit of, a, of like a history lesson. Because I think there's some things we read in scripture where Jesus will tell a story and we're going, here's what I think it means. And we're like, that's not what it means at all. Because the first century hearers would have, would have heard that very differently. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. But I think a lot of us see Jesus uh, kind of almost like a caricature. Like, do you ever like go to like a theme park and there's a person there that will draw a caricature picture of you for like 50 bucks, 75 if, if you want color, you know, like one of those kind of things. And it's like an exaggerated thing of you enhancing all the things you're embarrassed about. You know what I mean? It's like they'll, they'll make, if you, if you have a little bit of a buck teeth, they'll give you a giant buck teeth. Or your ears that are slightly larger than other ears are like, like dumbo size ears in the caricature, right? And it's, it's, it's kind of like you, but it's also kind of not like you in a lot of ways. And a lot of ways, that's how we see Jesus. A lot of the pictures that we see of Jesus are almost like caricatures of him. We have like this light skin, herbal essence hair, freshly blow-dried, beauty pageant sash. He floats when he moves, right? He's, always, he's petting a lamb, right? So you have some pictures like this. This is, this is Swedish Jesus, right? Did we show the other one too? Is that the second one? So this is a lot of times what you'll have, especially maybe if you grew up in a, like a, a Catholic church and you have your candles. This, these are the, the kind of pictures that you would have of Jesus on your candle. And the reality is this is not what Jesus looked like most likely. Jesus uh, was Middle Eastern. So uh, one of my friends, I, uh, we used to travel and do like um, media stuff together, and uh, his name is Austin Hajavani. okay? Uh, he looks like he, you would cast him as the bad guy in a SEAL Team 6 movie, okay? Like this is, and so whenever, post 9-11, when we would fly, uh, he would always like 100% of the time get pulled out of the line for random security checks, okay? But it was always him, okay? And, and this would have been Jesus. Jesus would have been pulled out of line. This guy the, guy, the guy that was just up there, he wouldn't have gotten pulled out of line. He would have got bumped up to first class. Jesus was pulled out a lot in the security lines if he was today. Also, he was a, a before he went into full-time ministry at age 30, he did the family trade. He was most likely some sort of tradesman. He was a woodworker or a mason doing the family business, working outside. He had rough hands. He didn't have cubicle, soft hands, right? He, had, he didn't have white-collar hands. He had rough hands. He probably was tanned, right? Maybe leathery kind of skin. Probably wasn't a whole lot of sunscreen in those days, right? And then Jesus also said some crazy things. He said things that are insane, and you're going to hear about them, but we don't catch what he was saying because not only were they like, royal like burns in a sense. We'll talk about that. They were also really dangerous to say. A lot of the things that Jesus said that, well, it got him executed. Put it that way. There are a lot of things that Jesus said that when we hear about it in context, were very dangerous to say. So today what we're going to do is we're going to pull Jesus out of the kids board book. We're going to pull him out of the, off the flannel graph. If you guys remember flannel graphs growing up, and we're going to pull Jesus into real life. But to do that, we have to talk about history. So we're going to talk about a bunch of history. Today, I want us to focus in on Christ, the, the, the world that he walked in, the opposition that he faced. And my goal is that you'd leave with a deeper admiration for how unbelievable, how unbelievable Jesus was and how unbelievable Jesus is. I want us to, to leave with understanding how we should approach opposition, how we should approach fear in light of how Jesus did. I want to encourage you also about the historicity and the authenticity of the faith 
that we believe in. So to begin, we need to hop into 40 B.C. 40 B.C., a guy named Herod the Great. You guys ever heard of Herod the Great? Right? Maybe a, a Discovery Channel or History Channel special on his stuff. Or maybe you're like, oh, that's the guy we talk about every uh, Christmas, right? Herod, who killed all the babies. All, yeah, Herod, Herod the Great. So the story goes in 40 B.C., Herod, the, and you, you, can, you can like Google all of this, okay? A lot of what we're talking about today is not actually in Scripture. Some of it is, and some of it is either uh, the Roman historian Flavius or Josephus, the Jewish historian. This is history we're talking about. I want us to understand that our faith is anchored in history, right? So 40 BC, Herod the Great goes to Rome, and Rome gives him the title of King of the Jews. King of the Jews. This is why it's called Herod the Great. He wasn't a nice guy, and his family life was a hot mess. Josephus doesn't say that, but we say he's a, he's a hot man. He was married 10 or 11 times. We're not sure. One of the two, a lot of times. He was married 10 or 11 times. He had 43 kids. 43 kids. Can you imagine that? The one wife that he loved the most of all his wives was actually his second wife. Got married eight or nine more times. But his second wife was his, his favorite. This gal named Miriam was his favorite wife. She gave him five kids in seven years. Okay, she was like barefoot and pregnant for like the whole time they were married. She gives him five kids in seven years. Herod one day decided he was a little paranoid. You'll, you, you'll see as a common theme throughout his story. Herod was very paranoid. So he thought that Miriam was doing some shady stuff so he couldn't trust her. So what did he do? He had her executed. His favorite wife had her executed. And then he, ha- he had her mom executed too, just for good measure. Super good guy. Super good. H- HR would not like this guy, right? So then later on, two of his sons were getting a little ambitious, Herod thought. Get a little, getting a little ambitious for the throne. You guys know first century or pre-first century era, there was a lot of like, you know, et tu Brutus kind of moments, right, where there was a lot of vying for the throne. And so two of his sons were getting a little ambitious, so he had them executed too. Five days before Herod the Great died, he had another son executed. Caesar Augustus uh, the Caesar of the day, the emperor, said that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. It was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. You were probably safer that way. When Caesar says that, who was not a great guy in and of himself, that's, that's pretty bad. Herod got sick. He had some kidney issues, and then he had, um, I'm trying to see if there's kids in here. There is uh, gangrene of the, uh, let's say, the nether regions. Uh, he, got, he got some sort of STD. We're not exactly sure what kind, but they call it gangrene of the nether regions. Uh, and <clears throat> so he essentially rotted from the inside uh, out, and he died. When he was on his deathbed, he knew that no one would mourn. He knew that actually Israel would celebrate when Herod died. And so what he did was he rounded up dozens of the most influential people, the people, the beloved people, uh, in Israel, the Biebers, right, of, of Israel. Like, he, he got them all together, and he had them quarantined in Jericho. It's a true story. All this is true, actually. So he put them in Jericho, and he told his, his uh, captain of the guard to say, when I die, kill him. Because he knew that that's the only way there would be mourning in Israel. Super good dude, right? So when he died, thankfully, they didn't do that. They were like, no, I'm not going to have that on my conscience. So they didn't do that. But the problem was Herod 
had seven different wills. So no one knew who was going to take the throne. No one knew who was going to be his successor. So he kind of had an Iron Throne situation going on, right? You had the three of his sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip, were the three primary characters uh, of, of Herod's kids. Herod was kind of like, like George Foreman. You guys know what George Foreman's kids' names are? Like George Foreman. They're all named George Foreman, right, literally. And so Herod was the same way. So like it's a lot of that kind of stuff. The three most prominent kids that had the most like, kind of power and kind of more, most in good and bad ways, most like their dad was Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. So we're going to talk about those three characters because you'll see those names in the gospel stories. And hopefully as, as we go through this, you're going, oh, that makes so much more sense now. So let's, let's start out with Archelaus. Archelaus. Archelaus right away goes to Rome, goes to Caesar, and says, Caesar, make me king, king, monarch, like my dad. Make me a king over as much land as you'll give me. And so what happened was right before that, Archelaus had, uh, it, it was during Passover in Jerusalem. And you know the story of, uh, of Passover. Everyone comes from their hometowns to come and worship and be around temple uh, in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is packed during Passover. And everyone's talking about kingdom. And everyone's talking about the Messiah. And one day we're going to have a Messiah come and overthrow Rome and all this stuff. And overthrow Herod and his cronies. And it was really the, the, the passion of, of Passover was one day. One day the Messiah is going to come and usher in a new kingdom. And so what happened was 3,000 people were slaughtered because of Archelaus' orders. Right around the temple, during Passover, in Jerusalem. It was a really dangerous thing to talk about kingdom, to talk about Messiah, to talk about overthrowing this regime, especially during Passover, especially in Jerusalem. I want you to take note of that. So Archelaus did that, and then he goes to Caesar to say, hey, make me like my dad, make me the next monarch, make me the next king of the Jews. Israel goes, we don't want that, okay? You just killed thousands of our people. We can't even worship because we're afraid of what you're going to do. So Israel sends a delegation of 50 men to Caesar secretly and says, hey, we don't want to be under Archelaus. Would you put us under you directly? Now, this is insane because Caesar believes he's a god. Caesar isn't just some like, you know, I'm a servant of the people. Caesar thought he was God, yet they would rather, Israel would rather be under a false god than be under Archelaus. That's how bad Archelaus was. So Caesar wasn't going to get pushed around. And so Caesar goes, you know what? No, I'm going to put Archelaus as a ruler over your people. And so what happens? Archelaus goes back, gets the names of those 50 people. And you know what happened? He had them beheaded, all 50. So you're going to create a delegation against me? Off with your head. So Joseph and Mary, you know, uh, Jesus' mom and dad, they, uh, we read the story where they flee Herod, right? But they were going to go back home, but they don't go back home because they heard some news. Let's read it in Matthew chapter 2. You probably heard this uh, every Christmas. It says this, But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why? Why would Joseph be afraid to go to where Archelaus is ruling? 
because they know what kind of guy Archelaus is. So having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. He, and so was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene, Jesus. So this is why Jesus grew up in Galilee, why he started his ministry in Galilee, because of Archelaus. Now fast forward, Luke chapter, we're going to skip all over the Gospels. Luke chapter 19, uh, Jesus uh, doing ministry. It says this, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, catch that, because he was nearing Jerusalem, he's getting closer to Jerusalem, he told them a story. So because everyone around there were, were actually familiar with Jerusalem, or they were used to going to Jerusalem during Passover, and so they knew the story. So as Jesus said, because of that, he told them this story, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God will be coming right away. He said, and you've heard parts of this story before, he said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Well, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's a nobleman who went to a distant empire, empire, interesting verbiage, to be crowned king and then to return. And then this is the part that a lot of us heard. But before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him. His people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. See, when Jesus is teaching this, we, this is why it's so important to know context, to know history, because we can read this today and go, what does it mean? What is, it, is this like, what does it mean that this person is going to a distant kingdom to be called king and come back? What does that mean for my, to, for my life today? Nothing. There's nothing to do with you. This was all about Jesus saying, I know who I'm facing. I know what's going on. And every, all of them are going, oh, he's talking about Archelaus. Jesus, you can't, you can't do that. Like, this is not safe to do. But then the, the story ends, the, the story continues about faithfulness and, you know, all that kind of stuff, good stewardship. And at the end of the story, he says this in verse 27. He says, yes, the king replied in Jesus' story. Yes, the king replied, Archelaus, the archetype. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. We've all been taught kind of that. And then verse 27, he kind of adds this addendum again. And as for those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Now there's no question, no question who Jesus is talking about. This is not about us applying that you're not like, and we will execute people at church next week. This is not for us to apply today. This is for Jesus to go, look, I'm not afraid of Archelaus. I know who I'm talking about. And then it says, verse 20, I love this, I love this part. It says, after telling this story about this mad king, <laughs> he says, after telling the story, Jesus went on to toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. Think about that. Jesus is on a mission. The last place he wants to go, the last place you want to want to go after you just made fun of Archelaus, after you just said that, hey, <laughs> I know who I'm talking about. And he goes, I'm going to Jerusalem. Starts walking that way. And the disciples were like, following behind. Jesus was not, it's not saying Jesus was a fast walker. He was just on a mission. And the disciples were like, oh, crud. The rest of the time, I want to talk, I want to talk about this relationship between Jesus and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of uh, Herod's sons who kind of interweaves throughout Jesus' story a lot. 
Um, and it climaxes in this one part. My favorite thing that Jesus ever says in Scripture, he says, go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. And it's just like this, it's this phrase that is so lost on kind of our understanding today, unless you know the context. And I hope you can never read that verse uh, the same again. It says, we'll start the story in Luke chapter 3 again. A lot of times you read this around the Christmas season. And it says this, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. The Roman emperor, so Tiberius Caesar, Caesar Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iteria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. So what he's doing here, this is Luke. He's a physician. In his gospel, he doesn't start the story with, uh, you know, in a land far, far away, once upon a time. Right? He doesn't do that. He goes, look. You, can, you know the exact season this was in. If there's any question of when all these events happened, it was when the 15th year of Tiberius, when Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest, when Pontius Pilate was the governor over Judea. Remember those? Yeah, this is when all this happened. And then it says this, at this time, the, 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 a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Think about that. This is a list of who's who, all the movers and shakers. These were the guys who had the most followers on Instagram. These were the most influential people in the land. And who did the word of the Lord come to? Who did the message of God come to? Who did God use? The, the most prominent? The ones with power and prestige and platform? No. Herod's boys? The, the chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas? That would make sense, that the word of the Lord would come to the chief priests? No. The word of the Lord came to an untitled, unwashed, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert named John. In the reign of Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod, comes the word of God comes to this guy with no credentials, no clout. And he announces that the kingdom of God is coming because when the kingdom of God comes, everything gets turned upside down. When the kingdom of God comes, the, who, who is in and who's out starts to get all changed up. Who's powerful and who's not powerful? Who can be used by God and who can't be used gets all kind of turned upside down. And maybe you're a leader with a ton of influence and a ton of talents, and that's awesome. And maybe you're someone that looks to other people and we're like, I, I can never be used by God because I'm not as influential as they are. I'm not as gifted as they are. I can't do what they do. I don't have the platform they have. I have 12 Instagram followers, and four of those are my mom's accounts. Like, I have, I have, like, no influence. But that's the kind of people God uses over and over and over again. The kingdom of God is not based on ability. The kingdom of God is based on availability. The kingdom of God is based on people saying, God, send me. I don't, I'm weak. I'm broken. I don't know if I have anything to give. There's way more talented people. But if you can use me, I'm down. God uses those kinds of people. And so John starts telling everyone to repent. He's not like, he's not shy about it, right? So he tells everyone to repent. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. It says that John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas. Ooh, not good. Ruler of Galilee for marrying Herodias. Herodias, beautiful, right? So it's like if me, Taka, married like Tequisha. You know what I mean? It's like, so weird. Herod and Herodias. Uh, his, and Herodias is his brother's wife, Philip, which we'll get along with here. And it says, and for many other wrongs that he had done. So Herod put John in prison. That's what you do uh, when you're kind of a uh, benevolent dictator. He, he says, hey, you're talking bad about me for marrying my brother's wife? I'm going to put you in prison. I'm going to shut you down. You don't get to talk bad about me. 
And so Herod is annoyed by John, but if you actually read the stories about Herod Antipas, uh, he's actually intrigued by John. You get this idea that Herod goes, get in prison, you, you need to stop talking about me. But then he's like sneaking into it, like by his, his prison cell going, okay, tell me more. I'm real curious. I'm real curious. So in uh, Matthew chapter 4, it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, I love this, when he heard that John had been put in prison, where'd he go? Galilee. So Jesus was in Judea preaching the gospel, right? And then he hears that John was imprisoned. Where was John imprisoned? Galilee. Who imprisoned him? Herod Antipas. So where does Jesus go? To Galilee. Isn't that awesome? See, Jesus, if, if, it, was, if it was any one of us, we'd go, hey, my like, cousin just got put in, in prison for talking about kingdom, then let's stay away from there. That's dangerous, right? If I said, hey, right now, it's super dangerous for Christians to go to TJ. So guys, we're going to go to TJ next weekend and preach the gospel. Who's in? Really low signups, right? This is what Jesus does. Oh, John went to prison? I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying John went to prison for preaching about the gospel, actually preaching about Jesus. Saying he's going to come and he's going I'm, I'm to, I'm, I'm unfit to pre- like, tie his sandals. And then Jesus goes to Galilee. See, the, the, the message of those that are called by God, the, the, those people, the message that they say are, isn't, God, would you get me out of trouble? God, would you give me comfort? The message was, God, send me. Send me. That's it. That if it's the message of those that are called by God isn't, God, is this difficult? God, is this costly? God, is this inconvenient? That's not the message that those called by the gospel ask Jesus. The, 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 the question that those that are called by God ask are, is it worth it? Is it worth it? God, what you're asking me to do, is it worth it? Of course, if it's worth it, it's going to be inconvenient. Of course, if it's worth it, it's going to be difficult. Of course it is. But is it worth it? And what's so wild about this is that I feel like people wait in line for, like, for a long time to get like BTS tickets or like, uh, like video graphics cards for their gaming computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, people will camp outside for days for the, the, the craziest things. And I was in line for the first iPhone. Okay, so like I totally get it, right? But then it's like, man, can you come a half hour early to church to serve? God. I don't know. Hey, we're going to, you say you really love getting engaged with the community. Well, there's some single parents that really could use our help. Can you come on this night or this Saturday morning? We're going to go help them. Ah, I don't know. I got to go wait in line for this video card, right? So when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was thrown into prison by Herod Antipas, Jesus immediately walked into the lion's den. See, this is not herbal essence Jesus. All right, this is not Swedish Jesus. So let's talk about who's, who's Herod Antipas. Who's this guy that's ruler over Galilee that Jesus uh, interacts with all the time? Herod, his first marriage, Herod Antipas now. Herod Antipas, his first marriage was to the daughter of a king of his nearest and most dangerous uh, uh, enemy, of this nation, the king of Nebadia, right? And they lived, he lived right next to the land that Herod Antipas controlled. Now, here's the thing. Herod, Antipas, does not love this girl. He marries this girl so that her dad doesn't beat him up, essentially. Like he, he doesn't want them to overtake his area. It's purely uh, uh, political. So the problem is, Herod has a lot of problems going on here. He doesn't love her. 
but he falls in love with Herodias. Remember who Herodias was? His brother's wife, Philip, right? He has another problem. He's already married. So he loves Herodias, but he's married to this daughter of the king. And (laughs) she's already married to his brother, Philip. And to add complication to it, this daughter, Herodias, is the daughter of another one of his half-brothers. Remember, his dad had 10 or 11 wives with 43 kids. And I wrote this down so I, wouldn't for, I would say it right. This means that if he divorces his current wife and marries Herodias, she will be his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law all at the same time. If they have kids together, she will be their mother, their aunt, and their cousin. It is so weird. It's like a weird country joke. So Herodias says, okay, I'll marry you, Herod, but you have to divorce your current wife. I think that's a, you know, that's a a decent ask, right? So he does it like a moron. So he divorces this king's daughter. That was his only protection. He divorces the king's daughter to marry Herodias, his brother's wife. Okay, just, I'm not a relationship expert, guys, all right? I don't think that's a good decision, okay? So she runs home, this daughter runs home to her dad and cries in her dad's face and her dad declares war. This is history. So what ends up happening is Herod Antipas takes 10,000 of his men against 20,000 of the king's men and he gets destroyed. It is humiliating. So with that context, now, Verse, or Luke chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus teaching, he says, but don't begin until you count the cost. Talking about following God. He says, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete the only foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person that started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. So what's Jesus talking about? Jesus is saying, hey, it's going to cost everything for you to follow me. So just before you commit... Just weigh the cost. Are you willing to actually do this? Don't just in an emotional frenzy say you'll follow me, but actually haven't thought it through. Think this through because it's going to cost you everything. And then he goes on. He goes, oh, I, I got another one. I got another one. Next verse. Or what king, dangerous Jesus, or what king, would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, wouldn't he send a delegation to discuss the terms of peace while the enemy is still far away? Now, everyone listening, they wouldn't be laughing at this one. They'd be going, oh, you're going to die. You are going to die. They're going, you don't talk about Antipas and live for very long. Yet Jesus lived, and Jesus did his ministry, and Jesus walked as if he belonged to another kingdom. Jesus lived as if the kingdom on earth was ruled by people who have no power over him. Jesus lived as if he was part of another kingdom that was more real, that was more important, that everyone couldn't see, that everyone couldn't grasp, but one day they would understand. And this perspective gives them incredible courage. So go back to Luke chapter 7. Let me give you a little background on some political stuff going on. One of the ways that politicians communicated in that day was coins. Right? So if you, if, you, if you go back to uh, that, uh, like in Jerusalem, the Holy Land, you can actually buy like coins, uh, Roman coins, that kind of stuff. And all these coins uh, were symbols or a lot of times 
pictures of, you know, the Tiberius or Flavius or whoever was uh, the emperor at the time, right? They didn't have phones, they didn't have internet, they didn't have radio or newspapers, so they would put a symbol on the coins. Every time you see the coin, you would know the political party that it represented or the political person, right? So if I were to say, hey, donkey and elephant, right, because we live in America, you would know that that represents political parties here. Whereas if I showed a donkey and elephant to someone maybe in, I don't know, in Peru, they would go, yeah, a donkey and elephant, what's the point? Right? So there's some things that happen here that we may not catch unless we know kind of what's going on here. So Caesar would put his picture. Herod Antipas never put his picture on a coin. Do you know why? Curious. Guys, have any ideas? He's ruling over Israel. And Israel believed that you don't put graven images on, on anything. Right? So Herod Antipas, wanting as much favor as he can with Israel, goes, look, I'm not going to do my picture. I'm going to put my symbol on it. And Herod Antipas' symbol was a reed. A reed. So Caesar didn't care. He's like, I'm ruling the whole thing. I'm not going to care what Israel thinks. It's my picture. Okay? So but Herod, Herod Antipas was different. So then what happens is Jesus goes to talk to some people that had come out to go listen to John the Baptist. Remember the locust eating, hermit in the wilderness? John, Jesus goes out there to go teach some of the people that had gone out there to... Um, to hear John. So in verse 24, it says this, after John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. And he says this, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Uh Uh-oh. Everyone knew what he was talking about. Did you come to hear a reed? That kind of sways back and forth, depending on where the wind blows, depending on what the climate is that day, changing his position, changing what he believes in. Is that what you came out here to see, a reed? Everyone's like, we know who you're talking about, bro. (laughs) Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People who wear clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Who's he talking about? He's not being cryptic. Everyone knows he's talking about Antipas. John doesn't live in a palace. John doesn't have nice clothes. GQ is not looking for John to be on the next cover. Then he goes on to say, were you looking for a prophet? Yes, he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer to when they say, look, I am sending a messenger ahead of you and he'll prepare the way before you. I tell you of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look guys, you didn't come out here because you want to look for fame and for power. You didn't come out here because you're looking for someone famous that's dressed nice, that is eloquent. You didn't come here to hear powerful words. You came out for something different. Didn't your soul ignite when you heard John speak? Didn't it stir something up inside of you that is really what you're really looking for? He's telling him, don't sell out for fame. Don't sell out for power for palaces and nice clothes. Be more significant than that. Live a life more significant than that. And his bravery that John has, that Jesus has, spreads and more and more start following him courageously. An interesting thing with Jesus is that nowhere in rabbinical history do we hear about rabbis that had female disciples. But Jesus did. And not any females. And this is really interesting. In in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour um, you can go on his website and you can see kind of where he was going. A tour of the nearby towns and villages. That's not true. Preaching and, and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, the 12 OGs that we know about. 
along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among, among them are Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, this one's interesting. A lot of times we just breeze over this. Joanna, who's Joanna? The wife of Cusa. Who's that? Herod's business manager. Okay. So Herod Antipas is his CFO, the one closest to him that's running all of his financial affairs. The guy who captured John, beheaded him, is going to eventually take down Jesus. That guy, yeah, his CFO's wife is like a platinum sponsor of Jesus' ministry, right? Like she's got her logo real big on his website, right? Can you imagine the conversations between Joanna and her husband at home, right? It's like, hey, you're making this like super awkward with me uh, at work. Can you like not do that, right? And Herod's like, hey, can you, can you like tell your wife um, like not to, like with my money, can, you, can she not support the guy that I'm trying to capture, please? You know, that'd be, that'd be really awesome if you could do that, right? So it goes on in Luke chapter 9, the very next chapter, it says this. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, because everyone knows the talk of the town, and Galilee is not a very big area. He says, uh, when, when he heard everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. He says, some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others said that it was, uh, Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets raised from the head. And, and Herod Antipas is really confused. He goes, I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. He's really curious about Jesus. So a lot of Jesus' ministry was actually dodging Herod's guys. Right? And so he would retreat to this area called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is an area that is ruled by Philip. Hey, and most scholars agree that this is where Jesus would retreat to. If it ever talks about Jesus retreating to an area because it got too hot, he retreated to Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, again, was ruled by Philip. Do you know why it was safe for him to go to an area ruled by Philip? To get away from Herod Antipas? Because Her Philip is not, like Herod Antipas is not on Philip's uh, Christmas card list, okay? Because Herod Antipas stole his wife. Herodias, okay? So he's not going to be like, oh, hey, I found Jesus. I'm going to hand him over to you. He's like, Jesus, hey, Jesus, hang out here as long as you want. I'll protect you from my stupid brother, okay? So it says in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus was, was in Bethsaida, and it says that at some time, Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. So this is like a really weird situation because the Pharisees and Jesus usually didn't really get along. But here it's like the Pharisees came out to go, hey, we've had our differences. Herod wants to kill you. You got to get moving, right? It's a really complicated relationship. And this is Jesus' response. And this, again, that's my favorite thing that Jesus ever says. He says this. Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will accomplish my purpose. And everyone was going, what are you talking about? On the third day, you'll accomplish your purpose. didn't make any sense. It will later, but it doesn't make any sense right now. But he says, go tell that fox that I'm going to keep on doing this today and tomorrow until I reach my goal. Go tell that fox. We read them, we're going, I don't know what that means. Right? When I say fox, what do you think? What's the first thing you think of as, as, as you know, someone who lives in America? Sly. sly. That is always the first word, Sly. It's weird. I don't know. It's like swipe or no swiping, or it's like, what else do we think about? We're like, that's it. Just sly. Just sly. Cunning, right? 
kind of crafty, right? That's what we think of. See, in ancient writings, in the first century, they looked at foxes like, like wannabe lions. Foxes were always held in contrast with lions, right? And the reason why is lions would make the kill, lions would eat the kill, and then it looked like, obviously this is not what's really happening, but it looked like that after the, fo- the, the lion goes away, the fox would go in there and it looked like it was trying to be a lion. It was trying to pretend like he made the kill. And so there was actually a, a, a common saying in those days that it, it sounds way better in the original language, but I'm not going to say it for you. But in English, uh, in the English tongue, it says, uh, better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. Better to be the tail of a lion to be the head of the fox. Because it's so, foxes are such posers. Fox, foxes just want to be lions, but they're not, and everyone knows it. So, Fox was a poser. Fox was a wannabe lion. So when Jesus says, when they say, Herod Antipas wants to kill you, and he says, you go tell that fox, everyone's like, oh, dang. Because what's Jesus saying? You go tell that poser. You go tell that wannabe king. See, a little backstory that you may not realize is Herod was a king. He was a monarch. And so when those three guys, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip, went to go to Caesar, Caesar didn't make Herod Antipas a monarch. He made him a tetrarch, which literally translated means quarter king, which means mini-me, right? So he makes Herod Antipas mini-me. And so he is not like his dad. He's just little guy, junior, right? And so when Jesus goes, you go tell that fox. You go tell that poser. He's not a king. He doesn't have power. Maybe on on this earth, he's he's got something. But in the real kingdom, in the kingdom that I'm a part of, in the kingdom that I'm bringing, he's nothing. He's nothing. He's the wrong kind of power in the wrong kind of kingdom. And this kingdom that he's a part of is coming down. So go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. I'm not scared of him. Jesus, you got to get out of here. Herod Antipas is going to kill you. You go tell that poser. This isn't flannel graph Jesus. This isn't beauty pageant sash Jesus. This isn't Ned Flanders Jesus. Right? Listen to the defiance. You go tell that poser. Go tell that joke. Go tell that fox. I want you to think about who plays the role or what plays the role either one of them, in your life of a Herod Antipas? What threat or fear or seduction or sin pattern is keeping you from being fully devoted to this man, Jesus? What sin pattern, what threat, what fear, what seduction is keeping you from being fully devoted to this man, Jesus? What's keeping you from being really dangerous and impactful for the kingdom of God? Whatever it is, tell that poser, they have no power, they're a fraud. Face up to your fear, face up to your sin, face up to your insecurity, face up to your apathy, face up to that relationship. So go tell that fox. And it's it's such a killer line. And if if you're one of the disciples, you're thinking the next line is going to be like, you go tell that fox that I'm the real lion. Right? That would have been like a killer ending to that. You go tell that fox that the Aslan is on the move. Right? Like, I am here, Right? He doesn't say that. He says he flips it. Just when you think that he's going to feed into the ego and the power structure that we all want him to, right? 
You overthrow. You fight Archelaus. You fight Antipas. You fight Caesar and Pontius Pilate with power. That's what we want. You got tanks, we got bigger tanks. You got guns, we got bigger guns. Right? You want, we want Jesus to come in there with a show of force. But then Jesus, one more time, shows us that he thinks totally differently than us and calls us to do the same. He says, you go tell that fox. And then the very next verse says this, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's really weird. He goes, you go tell that fox that I'm like a mother hen. And his disciples were like, no, 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 come here. Let's try that again. Don't know where you're going with this. Let's try something else, right? What was Jesus saying? Because the kingdom, the story of our kingdom that we're a part of is a story of a, of a fox and a hen. Because a hen, what Jesus was saying, when, when a hen is, has all her little chickies around her, right, and a fox jumps the fence to kill the chicks, what can the hen do? It doesn't know jujitsu, right? It's not going to break out the katana and go to town. What does the hen do? All a hen can do it's really important you catch this. All a hen can do is gather all the chicks under her wings, give her life, and hope that when the fox is done, that it's satisfied and leaves the chicks alone. This is the story of the kingdom that we're a part of. This is true power. This is why Jesus said, man, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And this is forecasting what he was going to, this is why I said, hey, you go tell that fox, I'm going to keep on going. And then on the third day, I'll overcome. What's he talking about? I'm going to be the mother hen. Watch, you, you'll get it later. You don't get it now, but one day you'll get it. True power is laying down for others. True power is using your power not to assert dominance over others, but to lift others up. So, Jesus knew it. Jesus knew what would happen if he was going to Jerusalem during Passover, talking about kingdom. He knew what was going to happen. Rome was real consistent with how they dealt with this kind of stuff. It happened to John. It would happen to him. Jesus knew when he talked about Archelaus, when he talked about Antipas, that it was pronouncing his own death sentence. What I love about the way Jesus did ministry is that his whole ministry was befriending sinners, healing lepers, Loving people that were different than him. Blessing children. Being a person of great joy. This was the ministry of a man with, that knew with utter certainty that he was going to die because of what he was saying. And he kept on saying it. And he kept on saying it. And he kept on saying it. Until one day, they hung him on a cross. Just like he knew they would. And I don't know about you, but that makes you really proud to follow a man like that. And then the strangest thing happened. The little chicks started to get dangerous too. Jesus was crucified and he was raised again and he got more disciples and he became more dangerous than ever. And then he ascended to heaven and the people, other people were put into power. People like Stephen got dangerous and they had to kill Stephen too. And then people like James and John and Peter and on and on and on. The kingdom was so unstoppable that this little movement by all means 
by all odds, should have been destroyed by Herod. The real weird thing is that today, we're here because of a bunch of dangerous people that said, nope, not on my watch. And the crazy thing is, in the power reversal, is that for many of us, for, unless you're some sort of history buff, for many of us, the only reason we even know Herod's name is in reference to Jesus. Isn't that ironic? So how about you? Here's a question I want you to think about that hopefully will bother you this week. How dangerous do you want to be? Not John Wick dangerous. I'm not talking about that. How dangerous do you want to be for the kingdom of God? Think about this man, Jesus, that we just talked about. Do you think that by following a man like this, he would lead you to a life of comfort and ease? Do you think that's the kind of man we follow? Sometimes in Western Christianity, we can think that Jesus' highest goal, that he died on the cross so that we can achieve the American dream. That is not gospel. Do you think he would lead you to a life of comfort as a goal? If you were to come up with a number between one and ten, how dangerous would you say you're living? Where do you think God's calling you to be? And would you be willing to do one thing this week, just one thing that would move you in the right direction to cause you to overcome a significant fear? Just one thing that you could do this week that would move you towards a little more dangerous for the kingdom of God that would make you say, go tell that fox, go tell that apathy, go tell that comfort, that need for security, that need for all that. Go tell that fox. And if you do just one thing, just one thing, don't overthink it, just if you just do that one thing to move in that direction, what I believe is you'll find that Jesus is with you. And more importantly, what I think we'll find is something will stir up in you. Something that has settled, something will begin to stir up. The embers will start to turn red. And what will happen is, if you can catch that fire inside of you, you begin to stir up that fire in those around you. In the same way that people went out of the wilderness to go see John, they're going to go, man, there's something different about you. There's people like, like Herod Antipas that will go, man, why is John so different? They're curious. So, I hope that bothers you this week. I hope you, don't, hope you realize you're not following flannel graph Jesus. You're not following the Jesus that goes, man, my goal is that you would retire healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, that's not the Jesus we serve. Sometimes we, we get that all mixed up. The Jesus we serve has said, bring kingdom, make a difference, make this world better than when, than when you found it. And it's going to stink at times, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be disorienting, and it's going to mean that you're going to have less in your 401k, you're going to have less time, and your, your carpet may be more trash, and you're going to be hosting people at your house, and your, your couch is not going to be as nice as it was before, and your car may not be as new as the car you wanted because you gave to things that mattered more. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Because at the end of your life, no one says, I wish I got better countertops. At the end of your life, no one will say, I should have gotten the higher trim on that car. Right? So if that's true, we all know which we laugh about. We all know it's true. It's so obvious. Then the question is, why don't we live as if that's true today? right? So, do with that what you will. Let's pray. Jesus, we 
we want, we want to make a difference for you, God. We're not about building this church. We're not about building a platform, about telling people about you. And God, I pray again, we, we pray all the time for no guilt, no condemnation, no shame. But I pray that you would draw people to an adventure with you, to live dangerously with you. That if we call ourselves Christ followers, following you, would we live lives that look like the way you lived? Would we look like you? Would people see the way we live? We go, man, that is just like the way Jesus lived. Focus on another kingdom. Make a difference through us, God, I pray. Would you help us to believe that we can be used to make a difference? We submit our lives to you. Every breath from now till the end, we, we give to you, we submit it to you as worship. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.